It's good to be with you once again, and it's good to open God's Word once again. We are back into our sermon series that we are calling Forward in Faith from the Life of Abraham. And last week, we looked at this idea from Genesis chapter 12 that God really can work through anyone. We have this impression sometimes that Abraham was this pillar of the faith, this man of impeccable character that never failed. And yet, when you examine the story of the Bible at the beginning, this simply is not the case. God calls Abraham and brings him out, showing that God can work through anyone. Now today, we're going to go further forward in this story and looking at Genesis chapter 13 and 14, which really illustrates the fact for us that God can not only work through anyone, God can actually work through anything as well. Because Abraham's story is not all rose petals. There are some dark valleys in it, and God remains faithful through it all. So we're going to dive into God's Word today. And if you are following along and taking notes, and God will see and reward you for doing such behavior. The title of the message today is super encouraging, What Doesn't Kill Me? In 1888, Frederick Nietzsche is the one that actually originated that statement. He quoted this, what does not kill me makes me stronger. And though that through the centuries, that sentiment has deeply resonated with people. This is illustrated in the fact that this line gets quoted all the time in popular music. Maybe your mind is already running to those songs. For instance, in 1989, Bruce Willis, yes, that Bruce Willis, recorded an album called, guess what? If it don't kill me, it just makes you stronger. Look, you guys are smart, very good. In 1996, Tupac quoted Nietzsche in Only God Can Judge Me. In 2007, this line provides the theme for Kanye West's song, Stronger. And of course, the runaway breakout of all of the songs in 2013, Kelly Clarkston re uh, released Stronger, What Doesn't Kill You, which became an international chart topper. Now, why do I take you through this journey of chart-topping pop music? Uh, the answer is simply this, something about that line, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, seems like it just resonates deeply in the human heart. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And, and the reason is, is because it really didn't originate with Nietzsche. It, it really didn't originate with Kanye. I know you're shocked. It actually originated with God himself. For instance, when you read through the scripture and the way that scripture talks about our trials, it has this idea that when we go through trials, they have the ability to make us, guess what? Stronger. For instance, Job chapter 23, verse number 10. Yet he knows the way I have taken, and when he has tested me, I will emerge as pure gold. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Or Romans chapter 5, verse 3 strikes a similar note. We boast in our afflictions. Why? Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character 
character produces hope. Though Nietzsche got a whole bunch wrong. He's the one that said God is dead, in fact. He did get this point very right because it seems the Bible emphasizes the idea that what doesn't kill us makes us what? Stronger. And in Genesis chapter 13 and 14, we see this illustrated very plainly in the life of Abraham. If I could put it more theologically, I would say it this way. God is not working in spite of your suffering, but God is working in your suffering. Listen to that preposition again. God is not working in spite of your suffering. God is working in your suffering. I think this is a critically important principle for us today. Here's why. We live in a technologically advanced, entertainment-saturated, comfort-obsessed. Can I say that again? Comfort-obsessed society where we tend to believe any amount of pain is to be avoided. Anything like me, you, you sense pain coming and you start running the other way. We love us some comfort. We love us some convenience. We love us some ease. And so if we get a whiff of pain, if we get a whiff of suffering, we head the other way. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not arguing in any way, shape, or form that Christians should be masochists where we run to pain for pain's sake. That is not what I'm saying in the slightest degree. But what I am saying is that we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that difficulty is somehow from the devil. Listen, listen to this little math equation. Hard, put it up there so I can see it because I can't remember what it is. There you go. Hard is not the same thing as bad. Look at that again. Hard is not the same thing as bad. If you think hard equals bad, it will determine the trajectory of your life. You will run away from anything that smells of difficulty. But if you think hard and bad are not necessarily the same thing, then you can begin to do what the Bible says and consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. The Bible's equation is that hard is bad is not the same thing. Listen, the Lord often does his best work when things are falling apart around us. Don't you know that to be true in your own life? When things get tough, God is often doing his finest work in our lives. Here's the reality. How many of you read Psalm 23 before or heard it? Lord is my shepherd. Beautiful analogy. And part of that says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. But, but here's the thing you got to remember. Shepherds don't follow sheep. Shepherds lead sheep. So when we are in the valley, it is because who took us there? The shepherd. Let me say it very plainly. The path of the good shepherd often goes through the valley. The path of the good shepherd often goes through the valley. And this is a truth that is plainly illustrated in the life of Abraham. The book of James called Abraham a friend of God. I mean, it's, that's a high honorific. I mean, talk about titles that I would like to have on my life. Being a friend of God is certainly a significant one. But do you know how Abraham had to become a friend of God? What he had to go through? He had to go through the valley so that he would know who God was so that he could actually be his friend. Abraham walked through the valley so God, in one sense, moved from an acquaintance to a friend. 
God takes us into those difficult and suffering times that he may reveal himself to us in more profound ways. Which leads me to my point this morning, we must trust that God is at work in our hardship. Not in spite of them, but in our hardships. So this raises a question. If God is at work in those hardships, how? How can we expect God to show up when things get difficult in our lives? I think this story in Genesis chapter 13 and 14 illustrates at least two ways we should expect God to show up in the midst of our adversity. God's activity in our adversity, number one, God demonstrates his wisdom. As we learned last week, when God called Abraham, the 75-year-old man, to leave Ur, he essentially called him to leave everything he knew and everyone he loved behind. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, it says it this way. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your land and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. But there was one kind of silver lining in this. As Abraham left Ur for reasons that we're not 100% sure on, his nephew, Lot, decided to go with him. Look at what it says, Genesis chapter 12, verse number 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Now put yourself in Abraham's shoes for just a moment. That would have been a bit of a comfort, would it not? You're leaving everything you know and love behind, and your nephew, Lot, decides to go with you. This is a good thing, and Abraham would have said, oh, man, this is great. And by the way, how many children did Abraham have at this time? It's, it's not a complicated one. How many? Zero. Okay, all right. Zero. No children. And so in a sense, when Abraham left and Lot went with him, don't you think Abraham was probably like, okay, Here's kind of the heir apparent in one sense. Lot's going to come with me. I can kind of pass on my legacy to someone else. This is a good thing. Abraham and Lot head out to this unknown land, and, and Abraham is saying, man, I can pass on what God has given me to the next generation. In time, uh, Abraham, uh, God blessed both Lot and Abraham. Look at what it says over in Genesis chapter 13. Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And Lot, who was traveling with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. But there's not, this is not all happy campers going on. Look what happens in verse number 6. But the land wasn't able to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. So God blesses Abraham and Lot so abundantly that they can't stay together anymore. So what happens? Abraham and Lot have to part ways. And the author of Scripture here gives a little bit of foreshadowing, a little bit of dark foreboding that things are not going to turn out so well. Verse number, chapter 13, verse number 10. Lot looked out, and then saw the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zorah, was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other, and Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent in Gomorrah. Now, no doubt this was a painful parting for Abraham. I mean, just kind of imagine the scene again. Here's Abraham, this older man. Here's kind of his heir apparent Lot, and he disappears over the horizon. 
what must have been going on in Abraham's heart? He probably said something like, well, what am I going to do now? I mean, there goes my hope for a future and legacy. It's, it's disappeared. My heir is gone. What am I going to do now? And the Lord in his mercy shows up. As painful as this must have been, Lot's choosing of the plain over the land of Canaan, which God had promised to Abraham, was the Lord's means of paving the way to do something even greater in Abraham's life. In other words, Abraham was grieving this loss, but God is saying, man, I'm taking you through this pain because I actually have something better in store for you. Look at verse number 14 of chapter 13. After Lot had separated from him. I mean, it's like Lot leaves and immediately, and the Lord said to Abraham, look from the place where you are, look north and south and east and west, for I will give you and your, what's it say, church? offspring, notice that, I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your, okay, this, is, this means you say it, okay, this, I will make you and your like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width for I will give it to you. You think the Lord's making a point here? Offspring, offspring, offspring. Abraham, your hopes were pinned on Lot. Lot disappoints. He reveals his character. He's not the heir apparent, but I got something better for you, Abraham. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you Isaac, the son of the promise. Listen, here's the principle. Our adversity does not mean God's inactivity. Our adversity does not mean God's inactivity. In fact, it is often when we encounter the most significant setbacks that God is doing his profoundest work. When our lives are most difficult, it is often in those moments when God is doing his profoundest work. The British pastor, Charles Spurgeon, who suffered a great deal in his life, put it this way. I can't improve upon it. I am afraid, he said, that all the grace that I have gotten from my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a pity. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and my pains and my griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. What is he saying? God gifts his people with suffering because he means to do profound things, not in spite of the trial, but because of the trial. Now listen. This has always been God's way. Always, 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 always. In fact, the greatest act of wisdom in human history, the redemption of God's people, was accomplished through the darkest hour of adversity, the death of God's son. That's how God works. God takes deep and dark adversity and does it to put his wisdom on display. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. 
Why? It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God shows his wisdom through our suffering, friends. How many of you have looked back on times after your life and said that was extremely difficult and terrible, but man, I see what God was doing. I'm glad he took me through that valley because God had a plan that I couldn't see in the midst of it. God used my suffering to work in profound ways in our life. If God was wise enough to use the evilest act in history to bring about the greatest good for humanity, can we not trust him to take our disappointments, our frustrations, our difficulties that we face and wisely work through them? Let us not forget, church, that our infinitely wise God promises this, all things, not the good things, not the rosy things, not the pleasant things, but all things. He says, I am working for the good of those who love me, of those who have been called according to his purpose. As one theologian put it, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn that in the midst of our adversity, God is putting his wisdom on display. Instead of raging against life difficulties, instead of tying ourselves up in knots with worry and anxiety and fear in the midst of life's difficulties, instead of escaping through drugs or alcohol or pornography or Netflix, Instead of just running from our problems and seeing them as opportunities to escape, can we remember the frustrations of life are opportunities for faith in God? The frustrations in your life are opportunities for faith in God. God, what are you going to do now? Man, this is a big problem. I'm glad it's your problem, not mine. I'm glad this frustration doesn't frustrate you. You know our God has never known the feeling of frustration? He is ill-acquainted with frustration. Why? Because he always has a plan and he's always working things out to the purpose of his will, for the good of his people, for the glory of his name. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Number two, what else can we expect in our adversity? We can expect God to not only demonstrate his wisdom, but we can expect God to display his character. After Lot leaves Abraham, the story takes a downward turn. War breaks out on the plains. And as a matter of fact, Lot and his family get swept up in it. Genesis chapter 14, verse number 11. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. And they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions. For he was living in Sodom and they went on. Huh. Consider Abraham's state of mind again. So here his heir apparent has left. At least he's kind of close. He's not too far away. And then all of a sudden war breaks out. And Lot's not just kind of like a, I don't know what you did back, a camel ride away. He's now been abducted, kidnapped. I mean, he, he, he is in a sense going to be a prisoner of war. He is in trouble here. Things have gone from bad to worse for Lot. You can imagine Abraham being saying, God, what's going on here? What's happening? What am I supposed to do? So he mounts a rescue for Lot. 
And amazingly, I mean, you, you stop and think about this. This big war breaks out. Abraham gathers a few of his servants. He gathers 300 men. And he goes chasing after these kings who are fresh off a victory of a war. And here's the kicker. They win. Abraham gets his servants and they win this battle. Genesis 14, verse number 15. And Abram and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them and pursued them for as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relatives' lot and his goods as well as the women and other types. Not only did they defeat him, like there's no collateral damage. I mean, this is amazing. Then something very unusual happens. This guy shows up literally out of nowhere. Nowhere. His name's Melchizedek. And he's called the, the king of Salem. He's called the priest of the most high God. And he shows up and he pronounces a blessing over Abram. Look at what it says. Genesis 14, verse number 19. Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high. Notice this. Who is handed over your enemies to you. So why did Abraham go get Lot and bring everybody back? It's because God delivered him. Now, there's all kinds of like theological debate. Bible scholars have all kinds of opinions about what exactly is going on here with this cat named Melchizedek. But here is what we clearly do know about him. He is, he is ultimately meant to point us to a greater priestly king that is to come. It's what we know. How do you get that, Ryan? Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 1. Here's what it says. For this Melchizedek, here he is, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the king. So we're talking about the same guy. It's the same incident right here. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness and also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Now, sound familiar? Sound like anybody you might know? Without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor end of days, look at this phrase, but resembling the what? Son of God. He remains a priest forever. So here's the idea that I want to drive home. God revealed himself to Abraham in this fresh and powerful and new way, not in spite of his adversity, but through his adversity. Melchizedek shows up to declare God has delivered you. Abraham would not have been able to see God in this way had Lot not been kidnapped. Listen, Abraham could not have experienced God's deliverance if he didn't need delivering. And here's the reality, church, neither can you and I. We cannot know God as healer if we haven't been broken. We cannot know God as our comfort if we've never been hurt. We cannot know God as our rest if we've never been weary. We cannot know God as our hope if we've never been hopeless. We cannot know God as our Savior if we've never felt the weight of our sin. 
When the Apostle Paul experienced his own brokenness, you know this story if you've read the Bible before. He had this brokenness, it's a thorn in the flesh in his life. We don't know exactly what it is. It's probably some sort of physical ailment and it hurts. And Paul cries out to God, oh God, take this brokenness away from me. I don't want to endure it. I don't want to take it anymore. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. Nope. I'm not going to take that brokenness. I'm not going to take that pain. I'm not going to take that adversity away from you because I want to teach you something in the adversity. I gave you this adversity so that you could learn, Paul, that my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Why do we rage against the adversities that God has brought into our life when it is the only way that we actually get to know God? So often we are content to know this kind of photo snapshot of God. What's the problem with a snapshot? It just shows you one aspect of a person's character. But God gives us suffering so we get this video, a full picture of all the dimensions of his character. God doesn't want you to carry a photo in your wallet around. So you say, this is my God. God wants you to have a a epic movie showing all the ways that God has shown himself strong to you. And so often we miss out on areas of God's character that he wants us to show, that he wants to reveal himself to you because we are so pain adverse. We just get mad. We just get anxious. We just run from the praying rather than saying, Lord, this is not pleasant. The Lord, the Bible doesn't call us to call pain present, by the way. It says it's pain. It says it hurts. But it also says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know why some of you have not experienced God in your life? Because you're just too strong. Or at least you're walking around with the illusion of strength. You don't let things hit you in such a way that it drives you to your knees and it drives you to your God. God, I need you. This pain is a gift because you want to show me your character. I want to know Melchizedek. And he don't show up until Lot is in trouble. And I got to put my neck out there and walk forward in faith. And God has to show up. We never see God's deliverance because we never need delivering. We need to live in such a way that it's only explicable that our God showed up. We move forward in faith because our God is faithful. He will not let us down. Here's the principle. God uses our pain to reveal his presence. God uses our pain to reveal his presence. This truth, if you'll get that, it will transform your experience of suffering. It really will. Because all of a sudden you're like, okay, this pain is a gift from God that is meant to show me who God is. And instead of raging against the pain, then you'll be able to do what James says, consider it great joy. 
my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 9, so I take pleasure in weaknesses. Paul wasn't like some sort of sick, crazy person. He was a person that deeply believed that God used adversity to show himself to his people. I take pleasure in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Now, I want to say one more statement about this, and I want you to put your theological thinking caps on right now. God is not doing something to you in your suffering. He is doing something in you through your suffering. Prepositions matter. Look at it again. God is not doing something to you in your suffering. He is doing something in you through your suffering. And that makes all the difference. When we have that perspective, our suffering is actually transformed. It, our, it doesn't make it less. It doesn't mean we don't walk through it. It just means we have a divine perspective on it in the midst of our suffering. And we're able to say, man, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's a valley. And there is death here. But I'm not afraid. Because my shepherd is with me. And had I not gone through this valley, I wouldn't have known his nearness in this way. God intends to display his character to you through your suffering. So where does this leave us? Uh, at the beginning of the service today, we sang a hymn called How Firm a Foundation. It's an old hymn, but it says some very profound truths in it. And one verse that we did not sing was this. It's the third verse, and it says, When through the deep waters I call you to go. Pause. Who's calling us to go through the deep waters? God. Sometimes God, God calls you to go through the deep waters. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. Why? For I will be with thee thy trouble to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. What does that mean? It means that when you have God's perspective on your trials, when you realize that he is at work in the midst of them, your trials actually become precious to you. You know, when I was in college, um, I mean, to my shame, basketball was God. It just was. And the way I knew it is because when I had a good game, like I'm on top of the world, and when I had a bad game, I'm like in the pit of despair. If your emotional life rides on something like that, even if it's like a good thing, like your spouse or your kids or your work, then a good thing has become an ultimate thing. Good desires make bad masters. And God, in his great kindness and his mercy and his love for me, wounded me. In this case, quite literally. I got a concussion. This was pre-concussion protocol. Like, I, there was no way I should have been playing. I got a concussion in one game, and then later that week, I, I, had, a, I had another game. Drove down the lane, you know, did something nifty, and um, got in the air and just black, like just blacked out, like out cold in the air, and came down and twisted this ankle and this ankle and broke two little bones like that. God said, oh, basketball is your God? 
Ryan, I love you too much because that God won't deliver. I'm going to take that away so that I can show you who God is. And here's the funny thing. It was just like, it was a little hairline crack, but it was an area where there was no blood flow. So that, that joker would not heal. And I had this boot on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and it would not get better. And you know what I did? I cursed the boot. I raged against the boot. And God was saying, huh, you're not taking that thing off. You know why? Because I love you. And I want to show you that I'm more than this false god of a little round orange cylinder. I love you too much to allow you to worship at the wrong idol. And you know what? Today, I stand here 20, 20 years later. And at that time, that was very unpleasant. But let me tell you something. I bless God for that broken bow. I wouldn't have chose it. But I wouldn't trade it either. Because God made me who I am and showed himself to be God in my life by taking away this false God. He sanctified to me your deepest distress. You got some things in your life right now that you're raging against God about? Some areas of distress that you're having a hard time blessing God for? Now let's fight together. Let's fight together to say, God, I trust you. Not to work in spite of my hardships, but in our hardship. Here's the reality. When you begin to take this perspective, your scars become sacred. They become precious to you. You bless God for the brokenness. You bless God for the hurt because you know what he did in and through. You don't live in regret, but you live in faith. And friends, let us not forget that there is one who has the most sacred scars of all. There is one who suffered terribly on behalf of his people. The Son of God, like you and I, suffered in this life. He walked through dark valleys and experienced disappointments and heartbreak. And yet, through the suffering, God was at work. Through Christ's suffering, through Christ's suffering, God saved his people. Through Jesus' crucifixion, the Father cleansed his people. Through the Savior's resurrection, the Father redeemed. Our Lord's glory always seemed to shine brightest when the day is darkest. So my suffering friend, you can trust God in your suffering. Not in spite of it, but in it. We're going to close right now. I just wanted to be, this to be part of the culture of Gospel Hope Church. So many of you spoke to me last night, last week, and said, man, I was just blessed when people ministered to me. I want to do that again right now today. So here's what, here's what I want you to do. I, I want to urge us right now, this is super counterintuitive. I want to urge us right now to thank God for our suffering. Now, if you can't do it, that's fine. Lord doesn't expect you to kind of wave a magic wand and get there. But maybe in your heart you're saying, Lord, I don't understand it. Lord, I don't like it. But I want to trust that you are wise. I want to want to trust you. I ask you for a little boldness right now. And if that's you, you got something in your life and you're just saying, man, I, I want to give this to God. And I need some help. 
I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand on your feet, and I'm going to ask the people of God to pray for you right now. You got something in your life, you don't even have to share what it is. But let's just pray for one another and ask some of our brothers and sisters who are in the midst of suffering right now. They got a trial in their life they're having a hard time with. Let's just pray for them and ask God to help them to trust them. So we're one, two, three, we're going to stand up, ready? So if you got a trial in your life and you'd like to receive some prayer right now, stand up on your feet and the church, you move. Stand up on your feet. There we go. There we go. Stand up on your feet. If you've got a trial in your life, you'd like some folks to pray over you. Okay. Good. Stand up on your feet. Good. Okay, just give you a couple more seconds if you want to stand. All right, church, go pray for these folks right now. Pray over them. Ask God to give them strength. Ask God to give them faith. You don't need to know the details. Just pray over these brothers and sisters that they would have faith they would trust that God is good in the midst of it. Pray out loud right over them. One at a time, go ahead and start praying. Father, we have some folks in this room that are hurting right now, Lord. There's trials in their life and they want to thank you for them. They want to have your perspective on their trials. And Lord, I just pray over them right now. They would receive the grace that you mean to give them through your people praying for them. And Lord, their faith would be encouraged and strengthened. Lord, I pray.
Not that we would enjoy pain, Lord, but we would enjoy the fruits of pain. That you draw us near to yourself. So Lord, help us to know you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I'm going to do one more thing before we close in worship. I want to not only thank God for our trials, but I want to turn to God in our trials. All of us have difficulties in this room, right? Every single person, the thing that we share in common is our humanity and our brokenness. So we all need the Lord. So if you could just, right now, I'd like to kind of just lead us in a time of prayer together. I'll pray a little phrase. You don't have to pray it out loud, but maybe something in your heart. Maybe you even want to just as a posture of surrender to the Lord, just kind of open your hands before Him. But say, Lord, we want to not only thank you, but we want to turn to you. So let me lead us in a time of prayer, and then we're going to worship God together through song. Father, our hands are open before you. Lord, do what you want in us. Lord, give us a posture of humility before you. Lord, forgive us for our anger. Forgive us for our anxiety. Forgive us for our fear. Lord, we lean towards you. We incline ourselves to you and say, Father, we trust you. Lord, work in us. Teach us. Guide us. Lead us. Help us to have your perspective. Lord, we bless you for Jesus. Thank you that it is through him and for him and in him that we can make sense of this life. Thank you for sending him to rescue us from our greatest enemies. And let us be reminded that anything we suffer in this life compared to what you've rescued us from is light and momentary. That there waits for us who trust in Jesus a glory that exceeds all other things. Now unto him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. To Him be glory in the church for all generations and ages. In the name of our matchless Savior, we pray. Amen.